Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John Lobel, your host. You'll find us here every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. It's a little bit uh, earlier or later. I'm not good at that for our guest. And you'll find us at prn.fm, the Progressive Radio Network. And you'll find our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. And our guest today is John David Ebert. John, how are you? I'm doing good, uh, John. Thanks for having me on again. These are fun conversations. I really enjoy them. Yeah. So uh, first, some general orientation. Where are you located? In Santa Fe, New Mexico. Cool. And um, I want to, we've interviewed John several times on this show, and um, there are a lot more we can talk about. So John David Ebert, you should look on YouTube for over 600 videos covering a range of things. Uh, archetypal ideas, Joseph Campbell, current thinkers, uh, Heidegger, uh, French post-structuralists, on and on. And one of the fantastic things that Ebert does is take a book that we all know that we should read, like Spengler's Decline of the West or um, uh, Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae or uh, Joseph Campbell's we, you know, we can all read Joseph Campbell's Power of Myth, but try to make your way through Mass of God. So uh, Ebert gets us through that. And so I wanted to talk to John today about is how one builds an intellectual foundation. If you were creating a, uh, a school today, <laughs> what would the reading list be? What should young people today do to build a uh, foundation? I think what I would do is break it down into a series of groupings so people don't get lost. I, um, I think that's ultimately what I've done is um, there, there are, I think, four or five distinct groupings. One is the field of myth studies. So there's that grouping. And then there's the field of American media studies, which is another grouping of thinkers. And they don't really overlap with each other uh, too much. And then we've got German idealist thinkers going down from Kant to Heidegger as another grouping. And then I think the fourth grouping would be French uh, postmodern thinkers. So within those four groups, which are the four groupings that I have tried to synthesize together, mainly because those four groups are pretty isolated and don't communicate much uh, with each other. Um, for myth studies, which is the field where I started, I think it's essential to start with Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. That's where I started. Um, it's easy to read. It's, anyone can read it. Um, that, and then I would also recommend then reading the, the four volumes of The Masks of God, which is a bit of a challenge. So um, let, me, let me interrupt, uh, and uh, I'll throw in my two cents as we go. I recently uh, started rereading, actually, I have to confess, on audio, uh, Here with a Thousand Faces, and it's harder going than I recall when I read it, you know, like 30 years ago. So maybe um, we could recommend starting with Myths to Live By 
which yes, that's, a, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. very accessible because Campbell was more accessible as a lecturer uh, than as a writer. And Miss to Live By is from a series of lectures that he gave. So that'll sort of get someone's feet wet. Yeah, I going, as is the case with a lot of these guys who are impenetrable. Uh, Rudolf Steiner, for instance, forget his books. You got to start with the lectures. Same thing with Heidegger. I couldn't get anywhere with Heidegger with the writings until I figured out, read the lectures. Um, same thing with uh, a lot of these guys. Campbell is much more accessible in lecture format. So, and a lot, I think a lot, I lost track of what they're doing with his books now, but I think that the Joseph Campbell Foundation, they published through something called New World Library, I think. They've gone, they've been taking his lectures and converting them into books now for years. So those books are probably pretty easy to read, all of those. Uh, there's a whole bunch of them. Um, so yeah, anything that's lecture based uh, for for these guys, start with that first because they're they have to consider their audience, so they can't get too lost in esoteric details. Um, same thing with Heidegger. Don't read Being in Time. Read the lecture series that he gave at the University of Freiburg on the history of the concept of time, which uh -huh. the content the content of which is pretty identical to what's in Being in Time. But being in time is impenetrable, whereas the history of the concept of time is not. It's very lucid and readable. Start with the lecture. So, yeah, good idea. Okay, so uh, in mythology, what might one read beyond Campbell? Um, Carl Jung, um, and here we're overlapping a bit with another domain, of, I suppose a fifth domain that I skipped, psychology. Um, I would definitely read Carl Jung since a lot of Campbell's breakthroughs and understanding myth studies came from his readings of Carl Jung. And Jung is, unlike Freud, uh, Jung is very difficult to read. Um, I prefer Jung to Freud um, as a thinker, but I prefer Freud to Jung as a writer. Freud's writing is a model of concision. He's Moses and Monotheism, one of the best books on myth ever written. Read that by Freud. Also read Totem and Taboo. Those are his two great myth studies books. They're lucid, clear, and wonderful. Uh, but with Jung, you got to figure out a, here again how to how to get into his stuff. He does have lectures, uh, but I would actually start with um, symbols of transformation, um, which so, is a little formidable. But um, it's, so one could start it. with Ettinger, or Edward Ettinger. Yeah, Ettinger presents Jung's ideas more clearly than Jung does. Yeah, exactly. Right. Or Eric Neumann. Um, I think those are the two best of the Jungians. Uh, those two guys are great. Uh, yeah. Any of those three guys start in that little nexus world in there. Reed Edinger's uh, Ego and Archetype. I remember reading that, being very impressed by it. Or Eric Neumann's, any of Eric Neumann's essays. Um, I think that um, his book, The Origins and History of Consciousness, is again a, a, another one of these tomes that's difficult to penetrate. So I would read Neumann's essays. Uh, he's got a lot of really good essay collections on various aspects of the symbology and archetypology found in like Kafka or Paul Clay. Uh, so he has these very narrow individual uh, studies that are very good. And Neumann, unlike Jung, was very open to modernist art. Jung just couldn't handle it, ironically, since so much of modernist art is based on myth. But he couldn't handle it. And even Campbell himself pointed out that Jung's essay on Ulysses was the worst piece of crap that Jung ever did. I remember hearing him say that in one of his lectures. <laughs> Jung couldn't understand Joyce. He couldn't understand Picasso. And I don't think Campbell was able to understand. I think he was puzzled by that. And I was too. 
uh, but Jung is just no good for, for modernism. But uh, for myth studies, you, you have to have the, the theory of the archetypes in there. You, you have to have some, some Jung and some Campbell. Right. So, okay, that's mythology. And uh, let's go. Uh, what do you want to jump to next? Well, um, so that's mythology. Let's continue a little bit more with Hang psychology. Let me, let me just yeah. interrupt again. Uh, I don't know where we find it, but <clears throat> Joseph Campbell famously distributed a reading list in his course yes. at Sarah Lawrence. And I remember, yes. among other things, Ovid's Metamorphosis being on the list. I don't remember anything else. But if one can get a hold of that list, that would no, be... Uh, that. I know where it is because I edited that volume cool. while I was working for the foundation. That's uh, the, the, mythic, uh, the Mythic Dimension, which is a collection uh, that Anthony Vancouver and I edited uh, for the Campbell Foundation, and that has his curriculum reading list in, in the back of it as an appendix. Great, great. So that's where you find that. Yeah, terrific. Um, I wanted to continue just a little bit more with psychology, too. Yeah. Uh, um, I think James Hillman uh, should be mentioned here, and I, I think that he's a kind of, almost a kind of post-structuralist Jungian. Uh, a Jungian inherits from Jung all the archetypes but he gets he deconstructs a lot of young gets rid of a lot of things like uh, the, the process of individuation, which he thinks is too linear, um, gets rid of the mandala as an archetype. Uh, but he, he he likes the gods, especially the Greek gods. And for Hillman, uh, myth really, <clears throat> really is Greek myth. Um, I don't think he knew much about any any other mythic systems. It's Greek myth. And he loved the Renaissance for that <clears throat> for that reason, for their revival of Greek myth. So Revisioning Psychology is his best book, and it is very readable and direct, and uh, I would highly recommend reading that uh, as well. As so the, one, of, one of the things we should say about Hillman is that uh, eventually Hillman realizes, well, he's very interested in where our character comes from. And what <clears throat> particularly Freud had tried to do is to assume a sort of blank state blank slate, and then a series of experiences, the mother, the father, the Oedipal stage, uh, uh, traumatic experiences, these would build up one's uh, psychological character. And Hillman uh, determines after a long life that none of that worked, none of it made sense, all the explanatory attempts were failures, and really, uh, what he preferred instead was uh, uh, a notion of a soul. You're born with a soul that has certain structures of character in it. And now, who was uh, his disciple who wrote the big bestseller about the soul? Oh, Thomas More, yes. Thomas More, right. So Terrible. Thomas More is sort of Hillman light. Uh, yeah. But yeah. he picks up that idea of the soul as well. Uh, Thomas More's okay, a little too pop psych for me. I, I just right, found it too okay. simplistic. Um, I like the complexity and the grittiness of Hillman. Um, so, uh, and we'll be having his son out here, by the way. Lawrence Hillman is coming out uh, to give a presentation out here to our little uh, group that we've named in imitation of Eranos, when Jung used to invite all these great intellectuals out to uh, Switzerland. Uh, I think it was at Ascona. Um, we're, we want to try to do the same thing out here in Santa Fe with the little group I'm connected with, and we're calling it Lucos after the Greek word for light. And uh, so Lawrence Hillman will be out here in April. Cool. Um, so 
very excited about that. Does, by out here, I mean out here in Santa Fe. So, and I hope it's all being recorded. And chill with us. <laughs> That'd yeah. be great. Sure. Um, okay. Looking so there was forward. that. So, um, uh, I also like, as, as though some people don't, and I understand why, but I also like Stanislav Grof uh, quite a bit. I, I read a bunch of his books. Beyond the Brain, I think, was his, his best book. Um, Grof is a little more into the paranormal, integrating the mystical. He accepts reincarnation. Um, and he developed, uh, originally he started out in the field of LSD psychotherapy. Uh, and he's a European from Europe who moved to America. Uh, and then when that became illegal, he developed another method for accessing the unconscious called um, holotropic breathing, which is a kind of a use of hyperventilation. Uh, and I've done this and it, it is pretty remarkable. Uh, after you sustain hyperventilation, uh, after a while, and you have to get over a threshold where it feels like you're suffocating and weird pins and needles start happening to your body. But then after a while, your consciousness does indeed cross over a threshold and you enter another dimension. It's, it's quite extraordinary. Oh. And he developed that. Uh, for, and people would recount memories of past lives doing holotropic breathing and being, you know, having karmic issues in past lives uh, that didn't get resolved. And then they find out why they have this phobia or that phobia in this life. So Graf is is more more applied. He's not a great thinker, but now, he's what, very good at synthesizing these guys. One of the things we should mention is that <clears throat> Campbell quotes Graf's description of the stages of an LSD journey yeah, and sees right. a strong parallel to his hero journey. Mm -hmm. And I think it's useful in principle, but probably a little too pat. Perhaps, I think so too, as is the case with any, any of these kind of systemizers like Ken Wilber or people. I can't stand Ken Wilber for that reason. Everything is really engraved in stone with him. He's just too too rigid. So I understand that. Um, right. So while we're on, anything else you want to mention on psychology? No, I think that's it. Those are the main, well, we, we could mention Lacan, but uh, of course Lacan uh, is harder to read than any of these people. Um, he's at like, the level of difficulty almost of Heidegger. <clears throat> and he opens the door into the postmodern world. So let's not go through that just yet. Okay. Um, so but if you do want to read Lacan, uh, I highly recommend getting, uh, I think it's Dylan Evans who wrote a dictionary of Lacanian terminology. It's very lucid. Oh, cool. uh, you have to have that D Dylan Evans uh, dictionary for, for so, Lacan. So before so, we go anyway. on in psychology, yeah. and it also laps over into media studies, I um, an incredible source is a book you'll get to shortly, McLuhan's Understanding Media, and it's incredibly rich in bibliography. Okay. Uh, these people that no one else refers to, and one of them is Anton Ehrenzweig, who wrote a book called, two books, The Hidden Order of Art and Psychoanalysis of Artistic Vision and Hearing. And one of the things that was fundamental to my work is, uh, to look at other cultures, to say the way we perceive is not, as you just said, etched in stone, but is culturally embedded and is different in different cultures and changes with time. And one of the reasons we get modern art is a change in how we perceive. And Aaron Zweig looking at music and modern art is very good at how the, the, the way or let's say perception comes to us as a fuzzy jumble, and then we put it together in an after image. And that after image was for the Renaissance, 
a coherent perspective uh, scene. And for the modernists, it no longer was, which is why Picasso didn't paint perspective. So Aaron Zweig is, uh, uh, I think, a, a, a very important figure in psychology. Yeah, I've never heard of him. That's interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, I'll send you some links. But uh, moving on from psychology, what do you want to do next? I would say media studies. I think that media studies uh, was the field I moved on to after I got tired of myth studies, um, which was introduced to me. The bridge there uh, was, and here, here we should, so we've got an interlinkage between these two worlds uh, with William Irwin Thompson, which is a, a writer that you recommended that I should read. Uh, and that hit me like a, an atom bomb. It was one of the best recommendations ever. And I think William Irwin Thompson's best books are The Time Falling Bodies Take to Light and Pacific Shift. Um, and I would also add The American Replacement of Nature. Um, he's the bridge between myth studies and media studies because he recommend, he told me over the phone to read McLuhan. And I was like, who's, who's McLuhan? And so he had to tell me who McLuhan was and to go read him because Campbell didn't and you need to. So that became the bridge for me into the world of media studies. And then spending years reading McLuhan and trying to figure him out. He's very difficult to figure out. But understanding media there is the, is the big one. That's the classic. That and, and the Gutenberg and galaxy. You read first if you're to get into it is. Uh, to get into it. Now, I would recommend there's an obscure publication that covers the period uh, leading up to about a decade in the 1950s that he spent. Uh, as a lecturer, and he's got these essays, it's called McLuhan Unbound, and it was put out by Ginkgo Press, and it has these individual essays, some of them are lectures, that you just pull out like a slipcase, read the essay, slide it back in, pull another one out. Um, that's a missing McLuhan book right there. I wish they had bound it together, because it's a little bit right. silly. Then the, other book is, the medium is the massage. That's so an excellent. You read that yeah. first. And because the medium is the did, massage. I, it's an excellent, easy, you know, accessible, not hard to find introduction to McLuhan. That may have been the first one I read. Um, I, I, yeah, absolutely. And I, then uh, McLuhan's big, uh, the turn for him came when he uh, read uh, the writings of his colleague, Harold Innes, who was also teaching at the same university. And I think it wasn't until Innes had already died that he read uh, Empire and Communications um, and The Bias of Communication. Those two books... Uh, were the thing that set uh, McLuhan onto the idea of this medium is the message, because those books are a history of uh, um, communications and how it matters whether a civilization writes on clay tablets or whether it writes on papyrus. It has effects on the bureaucracy and the organization of the, of the whole society. Uh, and so that medium mattering became to McLuhan his thing that he had synthesized together with an earlier book that he did called The Mechanical Bride, which is a good, also a good fun book to read, uh, early McLuhan. And he synthesized his, um, his interest in popular culture along with Innes' uh, emphasis on the medium. And through that decade uh, where he wrote all those essays leading up to understanding media is when he figured all his, his game out. And once he did, he exploded across the media landscape. He was on every talk show in the, in the mid to late 60s. Uh, 65 to like 68 or so, uh, he was on everything. Um, and uh, so those, there's one other media studies classic that you should also read um, by one of uh, McLuhan's colleagues, Walter Ong. Uh, he was a priest. 
Um, and he wrote a book called Orality and Literacy, which is a, a very good examination of the differences in the cognitive structures of oral tradition versus written tradition. Um, it's, they actually wire the brain in totally different ways. And on goes into a lot more detail about this than McLuhan does, about the differences just between those two traditions. So that, that book is not hard to read, and it's not very long. Um, those are the main media studies classics. What's the name of that one again? Orality and Literacy. Now, uh, one of the reasons this is important is that uh, understanding how, to put it crudely, uh, the dominant medium rewires the brain. Uh, and it's interesting when McLuhan wrote his book, psychology was still behaviorist. And uh, uh, cognitive psychology had not emerged yet. But cognitive psychology addresses how do we cognate? We, you know, this stuff hits our retina, then what? And so that's what cognitive psychology addresses. And what McLuhan teaches us is that the then what is different in different cultures, depending upon dominant media, whether you have hieroglyphs or a phonetic alphabet or TV. And if this is important today, as uh, we see our students uh, now on Facebook, what is that doing? How does it rewire the brain? What kind of yeah. world is that creating? Because they, um, as McLuhan said, that uh, children who grow up watching television first and then coming to literacy are going to think differently. And but even more so now that with kids being raised from day one on electronic media, um, reading printed books is going to seem like an, an, as antiquated as learning Latin or Sanskrit. You know, it's, it's going to be this old fashioned thing that people used to do uh, that it may gradually die out and convert entirely to the electronic world. Um, I prefer books because I have a tactile relationship with books. Um, if I can touch the book, um, then I'll remember what paragraph was where. Um, and I can't do that so well with uh, electronic media. I get the visual version of it, but I don't have the tactility. So I don't tend to remember visual uh, electronic text quite as well. It does make a difference in the way you, you remember the text is also. Um, so yeah, the media is the message. It, it really changes everything. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what uh, the millennials coming along now. I mean, I have a lot of friends who are millennials who are very literate and do still read books, uh, but a lot of them don't. And uh, I hear teachers complaining all the time uh, that the students are just, they can't write, they, they can't think. Um, they can't write, you know, anything out at all. And they're just sitting in classroom on their phones and their laptops, uh, barely even paying attention to the lectures. So it's having a disastrous effect on a lot of the uh, traditional Gutenbergian ways of approaching how to learn to read and write. Uh, but so the, the last couple of myths, uh, media studies classics I would recommend is Neil Postman, uh, who is a big uh, sort of post-McLuhanite scholar. Um, and a popularizer of McLuhan's ideas. He's a lot easier to read than McLuhan. And his most famous book is uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death, um, where he talks about the differences between uh, politics as it was presented, let's say, with the Lincoln-Douglas debates that was a literate culture and they could sit for four hours. One guy would talk for two hours. The other guy would get up and rebut for an hour. But television turns all that into sound bites and entertainment. So you just get, you have two minutes to respond. 
you know, back and forth, and nobody really learns anything, and it's all done as spectacle and entertainment. That's what he talks about in Amusing Ourselves to Death. And the last media studies book I would recommend is, once again, kind of a weird bridge between myth studies and media studies, which is Leonard Schlein's The Alphabet Versus the Goddess that came out in the mid-90s uh, before he died. Um, and he was a brain surgeon who uh, was very fond of McLuhan, but also very learned in uh, Campbell's world as well. And that's one of like the last most important uh, myth studies books to come out. Um, and he, in that book, says that there is a bias, a gender bias in written societies where he says that societies that introduce literacy tend to become patriarchal and to favor uh, left brain ways of doing things and tend to discredit uh, the goddess or the feminine. Uh, whereas if you get oral traditions, women tend to do much better in societies that don't yet have writing. They tend to be worshiped as goddesses. Uh, you might find matriarchies there. Um, it's, it's a controversial thesis, and I think there are exceptions to it. Um, but there is a lot of weird sort of correlation with that. Once a society becomes literate, uh, then it becomes almost fanatically masculinist. Um, so that's his thesis in that book. It's provocative and interesting to consider. Those are the great media studies books. Right. So what you and I would long for is um, who has written along these lines that address what's been going on in the past 10 years. Have you encountered any of that? Not really. It's what I have encountered has shifted over into postmodern philosophy, like Peter Sloterdijk um, is a good example of this. He comes out of, uh, he's postmodern, but at the same time, um, he was very well schooled in myth studies and uh, he had gone to India early in his career to uh, apprentice to a guru and then came back to Germany and just became a very good, great, great German thinker. And he wrote the Spheres Trilogy, which are these huge 3,000 page tomes on uh, how spheres determine human habitation. The, the human being is always in something somewhere. There's always a, a spherological immune system, uh, usually a metaphysical immune system that is spherologically encasing him and containing him. And what happens when a sphere collapses and ruptures is that it causes it causes social chaos and disintegration. Um, so there's a lot of that kind of thinking in Peter Sloterdijk. And he has a TV show in uh, Europe, in Germany, where he uh, has intellectuals on and he, he uh, interviews them. So I haven't seen it much, though, outside of postmodern theory. Um, the, the, the field of popularizing these things seems to be getting narrower and narrower and less and less interesting. There is Jordan Peterson with his maps of meaning, but I think that book is a is a is a disaster as far as the writing goes and the organization. It's, it's really a mess. It's not a readable book at all. And so there's been a diminution there. There's been a loss even in the intelligentsia in the ability to write and organize texts. Um, so that, that's all I can think of as far as the past 10 years goes. So let's let's go to uh, German idealism. And what is idealism? Well, it's something that was developed uh, by the Germans who always put the emphasis on the human subject and the subjectivity of um, the subject reigning over the external world. The Greeks always put the, they never took into account the subject. For them, it was always object, object, object. And for Plato, the ideas, therefore, were out there. The ideas were something that the mind could access through a process of intellectual discipline, and that you, but that they are actually, in some sense, in this metaphysical dimension on the other side, I guess, perhaps, and that everything in the physical world uh, is, a, is a temporal, 
ephemeral copy of these perfect ideas. All the individual horses that you see are copies of the idea of horse that exists somewhere in the metaphysical world that all these individual horses are manifestations of. And those individual manifestations are uh, apprehensible to the senses, whereas the forms can only be accessed by the intellect because they're invisible and they have to be inferred through comparison and contrast of each of the particular examples. So that's Greek idealism. But once you get to the Germans, starting with Immanuel Kant, uh, with the critique of pure reason in, I think, 1783 or four, something like that. It might be 1789. Um, he takes everything and puts it inside the human mind, and he says, well, you know what? Even space and time are a priori structures inside the human brain, without which we wouldn't even be able to make any causal inferences whatsoever. So he puts uh, the categories of space and time and the categories of the understanding, quantity, quality, relation, modality, these are er categories without which the human brain cannot think at all, and which we therefore presuppose, and which therefore somehow are wired into the brain, and determine what experiences we can have in the outer world. And then the ideas, the big ideas, the, pl the platonic ideas then, are what he says are not categories of the understanding, which orient the senses to the physical world, uh, but these are the ideas of the reason. Fernumt, not Verstand. Fernumt seeks to unify everything with metaphysical ideas like God, the soul, immortality. These are the big ideas that are out of bounds for sensory experiences. Um, so you can't prove or disprove them. All you can do is use them to synthesize on a metaphysical level um, and from the point of view of the human subject, the physical world. And so science has certain things that it can tell us, but it can't make pronouncements on religion because it can't confirm or deny the reality of ideas of the reason like God and the soul. Those are in the world of metaphysics. So he was trying to create boundaries uh, because I think in his day, and he started out as a scientist too, made a lot of contributions to science. Uh, I think he was worried about what the consequences of science might be, that it might eventually invade the sphere of religion and, and destroy it and dismantle it, which is precisely what did happen. So, that book, which is extremely difficult to read, but it's one of my all-time favorite philosophy uh, philosophy books. I've never successfully encouraged anyone to read it who actually went and read it. <laughs> That's never happened. Uh, it's really tough. But I did create a chapter-by-chapter chapter YouTube series for it. So if you're brave enough to try it, uh, you got me along there as a guide because uh, I did every single chapter of it on YouTube. Um, so that's the birth of German idealism right there with Kant. And then you don't have to read these guys, the guys who come after him, Fichte and Schelling. They're not absolutely essential. Uh, I'm, I'm not too fond of Fichte. Uh, Schelling I like a lot. He's very deep and metaphysical. And then there's Hegel. Um, I don't care for that much, but he apotheosizes German idealism more so perhaps even than Kant with the phenomenology of, of spirit. Everything for him is about ideas, ideas, ideas. Uh, history is the unfolding of the ideas in the mind of God. Um, that's German idealism taken as far as you can go with it. Um, I read the phenomenology just because I, I felt like it, but I, I don't know. You could probably do without it, unless you're Marxist. Uh, and in that case, then it becomes a, a Bible. <laughs> it's, it's almost as essential as, as capital. Um, so, and then this winds down and disintegrates with Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, who in the latter decades, Kierkegaard about in the 1850s, um, started having, Kierkegaard hated Hegel. He went to go listen to Hegel lecture and he could, absolutely could not stand him. 
With Kierkegaard, we get a lot of anxiety. Indeed, the very anxiety that's first announced by Kant about science gobbling up religion is totally manifest now with Kierkegaard. A anxiety, fear, and trembling. He's really worried <laughs> about what's going to happen to his religion. You can All his books are about this. And then by the time you get to Nietzsche in the 1870s and 80s, the whole thing has pretty much crumbled and disintegrated. And Nietzsche comes in uh, and philosophizes, as he puts it, with a hammer and goes in and deconstructs. And, you know, he's the first nihilist in a certain sense, uh, the father of nihilism. But he also regarded nihilism as a threat and a danger to culture. And he knew that it would spread and get worse, even though he himself was somewhat of a nihilist and didn't believe in any of these ideas of the reason in any absolute sense whatsoever. For Nietzsche, they're all creations of the mind, and specifically cultural creations of certain times and certain places. Good and evil means something totally different from the Greeks, from what it meant to uh, the Christians. Uh, you know, good, good and evil doesn't even exist in, in the Greek morality. It's good and bad. You know, he is good who can uh, repay uh, an offense with an offense of equal power back. That's good. Bad is he who's pathetic and has no power to avenge uh, anything like that. But then with the Christians, then the slave morality, you get a whole new ethic coming in where he is good who cannot harm us. He is good who is a good guy. He's one of us. He doesn't have any power. He's not a threat. Those are evil who have power to harm us and threaten us. So good and evil comes in to replace good and bad. So you get this moral uh, relativism with Nietzsche that didn't appear with any of those other German idealist thinkers. And then finally, the whole tradition is finished off by Heidegger. I think Heidegger is the very end, tail end of all of this. He's also, in a way, the godfather of postmodern thinking, which I don't think could have happened without him. And um, again, the big book there, Being in Time, is not my favorite Heidegger text. I actually don't prefer it. I've only read half of it um, because I got everything I needed from all the other books and writings and lectures that he did. Don't read that. Read the history of the concept of time. Read that for the concept of Dasein, what being means. And in a certain sense, being for Heidegger um, has almost the ontological status of what God would have had for Kant, let's say. You, you can't apotheosize God anymore. But what we have now with Heidegger is being. Being is what something uh, means. Everything that means something in a culture means it in a certain way that's historically determined by a set of a priori presuppositions for how something is true in a certain way. Certain entities unconceal themselves in different times in different ways, and that's how we say this thing is. Like, for instance, being for the Greek, early Greeks, the pre-Socratics, was phusis. And phusis simply means uh, the arising of entities that flash forth into the, what Heidegger calls the clearing, um, that flash forth, show themselves, and vanish. Um, it's very immanental, deeply metaphysical, but that's how things uh, uh, mean as being for the pre-Socratics. But then you get to Plato, and being now becomes transcendent. It's identified with the ideas. Being is transcendent and separate from becoming. So anything that has ontological being, the status of ultimate reality for Plato is totally transcendent now and metaphysical. For him, the physical world uh, has fallen. And in a certain way, as Nietzsche points out, he's already paving the way for Christianity's deprivileging of the world of nature and the senses. Uh, Heidegger didn't like Plato that much, I don't think. Um, but anyhow, I, I would start with uh, the history of the concept of time uh, or his earliest lecture course, actually, I think it's just notes toward the definition of philosophy that he gave in 1919. 
that's short and easy to read. And I think it's his earliest recorded lecture. It's very good. Read the lectures for Heidegger. Don't leave being in time out of it. Don't, if you don't even get to it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's overrated. Um, so that's what I would say about Heidegger. And, and read his essays. The, the essay collection called uh, Basic Writings of Heidegger. That's essential. All of those essays in there are his landmarks. Um, so that's, that's the German idealist tradition. Those are the texts. Um, this, it, would it be true to say that Heidegger holds that with the pre-Socratics, man was the creature that experienced being, and with Plato, man became the creature that philosophized about being? Yeah, very much so. That sounds right. Absolutely. Uh, I ran across that somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, so, okay, now, now a biggie, the, uh, the French post-structuralist. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I came, that was the last grouping out of this that I came to, um, the French postmodern thinkers. And the one that drew my attention first was Baudrillard, because at the time I was working on a book about the metaphysics of dead celebrities, and I knew he would have something interesting to say about it. Um, so the key text that blew me away was his most famous one, uh, Simulacra and Simulation. Um, it's, it's a bit difficult to read, but it's short. And the language is quite dazzling. I, I think the writing is some of the best writing he ever did in that book. It's, it's really beautiful. That really dazzled me, but uh, it's hard to read. But his easy stuff, um, there's a collection of essays by him called Screened Out, which is uh, essays that he wrote for a periodical in France somewhere. I don't know whether it was a newspaper or whatever. Uh, so they're very direct. Um, you know, he's got essays on Madonna. He's got essays on hyper-reality, what it means. Um, for Baudrillard, the hyper-real is that aspect which has taken over our culture to such a degree that we prefer the hyper-real to the reality. We prefer porn because porn is hyper-real sex. It's more sexual than sexuality. Um, if we brought back the dinosaurs, um, if we figured out a means of genetically resurrecting them, they would be a disappointment. We would prefer the hyper-real dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Um, and so you get, this leads to the creation of amusement parks like Disneyland, Las Vegas that recreate the pyramids or that recreate old times gone past. We don't care about that anymore. We want the simulacrum. We want the, the stuff that's more real to us than the real thing. And so there becomes, especially with Americans, uh, a preference for the fake the artificial, uh, for the historical simulacrum, to the authentic, to the original. Um, that's Baudrillard's thing, and he's very good at it. And uh, uh, he was the first French postmodern thinker that grabbed me, and I was like, wow, this is really amazing. So if you had to um, define uh, French postmodernism, what, what is postmodernism, French postmodernism? What do these thinkers have in common? What, what are they saying about our world? Number one is that they're all anti-authoritarian. Um, none of them trust authority, and they all want to pull the rug out from anyone who makes a pretense to authority, whether this includes nations and their colonializing antics, or whether this includes massively learned scholars like Joseph Campbell. How dare he? colonize all these different fields of the intellect and tell us what to read. So there begins to become this, and again, you can see this is the French mentality. It's gone from the revolution, you know, get, let's kill the kings. Um, and so they take that down into uh, French postmodern thinking. They're still killing kings here. 
Um, so they don't trust thought systems that pretend to be absolute, like Hegel, which is ironic because most of them are Marxist and Hegel is a huge influence you know, on, on Marx. Uh, so they have this distrust of what they call grand meta-narratives. And Leotard wrote uh, the book called The Postmodern Condition, which I don't think is a very good book, but it's famous for saying that, uh, in a nutshell, what we're all doing here, we French uh, postmodernists, is discrediting and dismantling grand meta-narratives. Everything is relative now to your point of view and what game you're trying to play. Hermeneutics comes in. Uh, German hermeneutics is that comes out of the Heideggerian tradition, uh, and especially Gadamer, who is Heidegger's big pupil who wrote Truth and Method, uh, also comes in and is consistent with the postmodern world because for Gadamer and Truth and Method, he says this interesting thing. Um, he's developing hermeneutics, which is uh, how you interpret the world in terms of truth games. Everything has a set of rules. Like if you want to sit down and play Monopoly, you have to learn the rules first. But those rules are valid only for Monopoly, nothing else. So he says this idea like there is no such thing as a text in itself. Um, all we can ever do if we want to read, let's say, Herodotus, all we can ever do is read our current understanding of Herodotus. There's no possible way of resurrecting the way the Greeks thought and felt and experienced what Herodotus said. All we can do uh, is go along with taking our culturally imprinted biases and presuppositions along with us into Herodotus. And so that's already going to relativize our discoveries. What we uh, discover as true in Herodotus has relevance only for our age. Because there's no way to get at this uh, almost a Kantian, you know, like Kant has the thing in itself. There's no way to get to the text in itself. It just doesn't exist for Gadamer. So that's very consistent also with dismantling grand meta narratives, uh, German hermeneutics. Um, and there are scholars who, who bring both worlds together that I haven't read. Maybe Paul Ricoeur is one of these guys uh, that bring both worlds together, postmodern dismantling. And of course, deconstruction as well. Hermeneutics, deconstruction, post-structuralism. Uh, they're also doing the same thing. So liquidating and melting and dismantling uh, the truth systems of the West. Yeah, could you define hermeneutics and deconstruction? So uh, once again, hermeneutics is something that actually pre-existed Heidegger uh, a bit uh, by a generation or so, and he picked it up. Um, and so Gadamer, then his best pupil, or one of his best pupils, picked it up from him. And so it simply means um, it's a language game. It, it means it's the play of how you interpret something in accordance with a certain set of rules. So it automatically brackets any truth uh, system uh, to a, a specific context. Doesn't mean those things aren't true in hermeneutics. It just means you have to bracket it and put it uh, aside as true for the system. There is truth, but it's relative to this or that particular system. Whereas deconstruction, on the other hand, uh, is about totally dismantling the possibility of having any ultimate metaphysical truth system at all. Because the moment you, as, as far as Derrida goes, and Derrida started as a Husserl scholar, Husserl was uh, Heidegger's primary teacher. Uh, so he's rooted in Heidegger and Husserl. And he knows, which is why I don't think you can understand Derrida. And I never could understand him until I understood Heidegger first. Um, and so he goes in and he says, well, all of these metaphysical systems are based on polarities. And anytime there's a polarity, such as, let's say, nature versus culture, one of those two is always privileged over the other. We privilege culture over nature. Um, so we like culture better. We dislike nature. Or uh, the gender world, man versus woman. 
the male is always the preferred, the female is always secondary. Or speech versus writing. Speech is actually preferenced over writing. Writing is always seen as a kind of secondary supplement to speech because speech is closer to the metaphysics of presence, the nowness and hereness of the voice of the person doing the articulating. That's the source. So speech uh, has a history of being preferenced over writing. So whatever the, tr the, the binarity of the metaphysical system of, of the age, what he calls the logocentric age, Heidegger calls the same age the metaphysical age, uh, which goes from Plato down to Heidegger. Um, so whatever is uttered in there can be deconstructed by showing that the opposition is always false. Uh, nature can be found in culture. Writing is a form of speech. Um, so he goes through and he pulls the rug out from under them so that they can no longer have this sort of metaphysical absoluteness and the whole system just collapses and crumbles. So what do you have left? As far as Derrida says, you have texts. You just have intertextuality, texts that refer to other texts through processes of citation. And it's, and it's another kind of game now. Signification is never absolute. It's always relative and it slides. So that's the difference between deconstruction and hermeneutics. Cool. So uh, we have, uh, say, about five more minutes to wrap up here. Anything else you'd like to mention? And maybe is there anything from the past, say, 10 years that you think... Um, um, we should uh, be reading? Um, well, the stuff that's come out in the past 10 years that I've been reading is mostly theory, critical theory, which is a larger umbrella for incorporating postmodern thinking and also some of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the Frankfurt School that came out of Germany during the 20s and 30s um, with Walter Benjamin. I, I like Walter Benjamin quite a bit, actually. Uh, you could read uh, his two books, Illuminations, uh, and I've forgotten the other one now, but Illuminations is the main one. Lots of good essays in there. And for Benjamin, you, of course, have to read uh, his famous essay on uh, the, the essay that he wrote about film. Um, it's, a, it's a great essay. Um, but then I would say, you know, past 10 years, mostly the stuff that's come out that I've been reading have been uh, thinkers like Paul Virilio and uh, Peter Sloterdijk and Slavoj Žižek. Slavoj Žižek is very good. He's very funny. He's a Marxist. Um, he was incorporated all this postmodern thinking. Um, he's not a, an abstract philosopher, but very learned, very erudite, and above all, very funny and playful. His books are a delight to read. Um, so those are the books that I've been reading that have come out over the past uh, 10 years. Um, so I just wanna, would want to say, too, I do have a Patreon account. Uh, I would appreciate any subscriptions to Patreon. You could just type in Patreon John David Ebert and the page will pop right up. Um, right now I'm in the process of converting my YouTube, the 12 part autobiography series into a book form. So oh, I'm transcribing cool. those lectures uh, and re-editing them so that they read. Again, you have to convert from one medium to, to another. There's different rules. Um, so I'm converting it to a literary document and I've published uh, the first chapter on my Patreon for patrons only at this point of my autobiography and then so it'll form a book as I go along. So that's the current project or one of them anyway. So there's that in my YouTube channel, of course, the John David Ebert channel, lots of good stuff on there. And then on our site, Cinema Discourse and Cultural Discourse, we have uh, two separate sites uh, that are related uh, that John LaBelle and I have lots of um, movie reviews on and cultural reviews and stuff like that. So. Great, well, John, thank you. We'll have you yeah. on again. So. Uh... Our listeners can email me at johnlobell at mac.com with questions that you would like Ebert to address in our future interviews. Thank you.
Thank you, John. It's been a, pro a pleasure as always. Bye-bye.